0: All right, guys, so we ended by talking about three mistakes that the church made. The first is in integrating the ideas of Greek philosophy with Christianity. And let me read, I want to read a a passage that addresses this issue. If you read 1 Corinthians, really concentrate on the first three chapters, because Paul thumps this issue very hard. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. That's what what happened over here. That is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20. So the church integrated, at this time, primarily Plato. Later, they're going to integrate Aristotle somewhere down in here. But it starts out with the integration of Plato with Christianity in those early centuries. And it really began around... um, the 2nd or 3rd century uh, A.D. Okay, any questions about that? Gentlemen, the reason it's important is because Greek philosophy, again, is based on human reason, and it became a competing source of knowledge with Christianity, okay? So we're going to watch how that competing source of knowledge develops over time. That's where we're going, okay? So the second thing was the church and state interests were intertwined. Gentlemen, the problem with that, and and again, I'm hypocritical in the sense that that integration of state and church resulted in my having a great life. This, This Christendom that you and I live in produced great wealth, great power, and great lives for so, so many of us. But, in intertwining the interests of church and state, you're intertwining eternal and temporal interests. And gentlemen, temporal interests will always, in the case of the state, will always take precedence, right? Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters And gentlemen, if there is a thing, a a belief in the church that is not believed, it is that. What do you mean Jesus can't serve two masters? I've been doing it ever since I've been alive. And he says, you're wrong. You're serving one master. Gentlemen, we've got a covenant in our hearts what that looks like because that tension is on all of us. But at any rate, it got integrated at a governmental level, interests of the church, interests of the state, and it caused the church to deviate from her eternal mission. And finally, the church took on that church uh, took on the Roman government hierarchy, producing the cler- clergy and laity distinction. Men, the problem is with that is this. We already talked about the passivity that it created in us as laity. The pastors tell us what to do and then we can give them money. They'll continue to tell us what to do so that we can get about the business of what? Living our temporal lives because they're taking care of the spiritual stuff. And gentlemen, <clears throat> the... Um, the Holy Spirit is the way God communicates to his people. He may use people to do that, but there's a problem that can easily crop up. And I wanna, I wanna take you to Jeremiah chapter five. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse. I'm going to read verses 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. Now here's the kicker. And my people love it so. But what will they do at the end of it? Gentlemen, when people tell you, I don't care if they're clerics or laymen, if they tell you that the Bible says X and you read it and you know that the Bible says Y, they're wrong, do not believe them. And gentlemen, there's one lie that has particularly been lethal for the church. And that is the lie that there are no eternal consequences for temporal behavior. What you do on earth matters. Your eternity is shaped every hour of every day. And you'll be brought into judgment for every careless word, every thought, every deed. Anyone who tells you that is lying to you. The Bible is your authority, and when men speak on their own authority, do not listen to them, especially those who are telling you how to live from their own authority. The Bible tells you how to live, and the Holy Spirit is the guide. You guys are all blessed men. You know how to read. You have a Bible in your own language, and you can read it anytime you want. And gentlemen, I'm going to read one more passage. This one's out of Jeremiah. That is the antidote to this. It's Jeremiah chapter 16. I'm sorry, chapter 6. And I'm going to read verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and ask For the ancient paths, stand by the ways and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. The ancient paths are where the good way is. And walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Gentlemen, you live in a culture that tells you new is better, new is smarter, old is stupid, And it's a lie. Think, men, about Abraham on the one hand. And on the other hand, think about the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Who understood God better? Abraham at the beginning of Judaism or the Pharisees at the end of Judaism? It's a no-brainer. It was Abraham. And, gentlemen, the same thing applies to us in the church. Who understood Jesus better? The apostles? Or the modern guys who are telling you that the Bible doesn't really mean what it means? Do stand by the way and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Read this Bible, gentlemen, was written by one genius and a bunch of fishermen. Right? One really smart dude, the rest were ordinary guys like us, fishermen. Read that book the way a fisherman would read it. Interpret it the way a fisherman would interpret it. That's the ancient path. Any questions about that?
1: you had touched on um kind of the the new, the old the the new testament church taking on kind of the roman system of government with the distinction between clergy and lay people how would you compare that to like the old testament with the priests and the prophets and the people that were chosen to interpret god's word and you know, entering the Holy of Holies and things of that nature? Because it seems to me that those, it would be similar that there's people chosen to interpret God's word in the Old Testament, which would predate that that Roman Empire way of doing things. Well,
0: remember that, that the distinction, that, stay there, please. Is the, the distinction that you're making, find that for me in the New Testament between clergy and laity. Now, what you will find, some are, apostles, some are prophets, some are teachers, and so on. But my friend, those are gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in kind different between the prophet or teacher on the one hand and the learner on the other. We're all priests. So gifting is, is hugely important. But what we've done, my friend, is we have... We have elevated speaking gifts so that everybody else who doesn't have one of those speaking gifts feels like he's irrelevant, feels like he doesn't have a place. And that is not true. Every member of the body of Christ is important. And finding out what your spiritual gift is, is really important. But we don't do it because we think, well, we got these guys telling us what to do, and that's all I need. That's not all we need. Part of the, one of the biggest reasons the body of Christ is so unhealthy is because we are not using our spiritual gifts, and we're not using them because we don't even know we have them. And so I'd encourage every guy in this room, get before the Lord and say, Lord, you made me the way I am for a reason. I am the way I am precisely because that's how you wanted me to be and you don't make mistakes. How have you gifted me to work in your kingdom? And get in the middle of that and don't quit asking him to do that until he shows you. Does that help? Yeah, no, it does. I. Yeah, it does. Thank you. And just, just one more thing. If the body of Christ is working right, it really is the Holy Spirit who is leading. There, there, there's not... There's not some guy who's up at top and, well, this is where it's all coming from. Mm -hmm. Where it's all coming from is Jesus Christ working through the Holy Spirit through his people.
2: Thank you. On with what he just said there. Correct me if I'm wrong, okay? The Old Testament, the New Testament. Old Testament, laws of God, through Moses, and everybody coming through. Then there's Christ. The New Testament supersedes the Old Testament in the sense that we are still to follow God's laws. But now you don't have the hierarchy. Because, like, you had prophets and you had kings and you had things of that nature put in by God but then he gave us Christ and from that point we are to go at least if i i'm probably maybe wrong but that's what we go by we go by the new testament and the rules set by Christ and our purpose and and i think maybe that's where there would be a distinction between where the laity <clears throat> And we are, are all equal now. Am I, am I wrong there? I mean...
0: No, let me suggest to my brother that one of the reasons that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament is lo, no longer in force is, is found as you work your way through the book of Hebrews. You come to t- chapter 7 in, in Hebrews and it talks about the priest, that Jesus is the, our high priest. Right. And that his priesthood is not from the priesthood of Levi. He's not a, Le- he's not a Levite. He's right. from the tribe of Judah. And the author says his priesthood is even older than the Levitical priesthood and is grounded in this guy way back in Genesis 14 by the name of Melchizedek. Okay. And that he is the only priest, the only high priest now. We have only one high priest and we all answer to him. Okay. Number two, about the Old Testament law. There's two intellectually honest ways to handle what the New Testament teaches about the Old Testament law. One is to say that you bring it all forward into the New Testament and you follow it unless it's, exclusive, unless it's, it's abrogated, unless it's eliminated in the, Old Testament, or in the New Testament. I'd suggest that's the wrong way to do it because you're not under law but under grace. So the other intellectually honest way to handle it is to say nothing comes forward unless it's repeated in the New Testament, which is just a, a short way of saying New Testament. New Testament.
2: Right. And you would say that that would be... because that's kind of my understanding yeah, more of it. we're
0: obligated to keep okay. the New Testament commandments. but Gentlemen, you, you have to understand, th- think about any act of righteousness that you do, Any following of the command that you do, okay? Does does following that commandment change you inside? Does it make you holy? Does it make you righteous? No. You're still the same bum you are right now, right? The only thing, the only person who can change you is the Holy Spirit. Who does the Holy Spirit change? The obedient. So you must obey, but you cannot believe that your obedience makes you a good guy. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That's an important distinction. Do you guys understand that? Obedience really, really matters. But it's because it's a sign of a broken will, and the Holy Spirit will now do His work, which only He can do.
1: Okay. So I'm a dad now. I have a four and a half year old. I love my little girl. She could do anything and I'm still going to love her. But when she's disobedient, I can't take pleasure in that and shower her with all the blessings I want. So with that background, there is reasons why the Lord told us not to eat pork. Scientifically, we know that it causes inflammation. It's yes. And and so it's not a salvation issue.
0: It's not an issue. It's not an issue. My brother. It's not an issue. Go to Romans 14. Right. Go to Colossians 3. Right. Do not make food an issue. I understand. Okay,
1: what's the question? So the question is, is there are things that that we can sign. Okay, so for instance, outside of food, when it talks about um, fabrics being interwoven, like don't wear, you know, we can measure the frequency in fabrics and understand that there's healing properties with linens. And so there's all these things that are now scientifically proving that God knew what he was talking about. And so it's not a salvation issue to wear. I'm not going to lose my salvation because I have cotton and polyester woven together, but I do lose some of the, um, like, there's, there are some benefits to not wearing fabric woven of two different material. There's, there's benefits in not eating pork. There's benefits in, you know, following some of those laws, even though they're not based on salvation. Now we're covered by the blood of Jesus. So again, here's another tension in my life, right? Like I'm learning all of this stuff of scientifically why these laws were created, but I'm also understanding that I don't have to follow those laws for salvation but some of them are to my benefit.
0: My brother, do you know who Richard Feynman was? I don't. Richard Feynman was a Nobel Laureate in physics. I a super d- smart guy. Remember when the Space Challenger blew up? Uh-huh. Richard Feynman was the guy who figured out it was the O-rings. Okay. Okay? So Richard Feynman was something of a philosophical guy. He was, like I say, Nobel Prize winner. And he said, science is belief in the ignorance of the experts. Science is fine. Have it as your own conviction. But just drop it. It's just a non-issue. Right, right. So do what you please, but don't, don't, don't make it an issue for anybody. Right, right. Or don't mix. Yeah. You, you're a, you, you, your scientific friends may be right, and they may be wrong. Right, OK.
3: Earlier you mentioned that, um, that Jesus is the priest of the church now. Uh, my question is in um, John twenty twenty three, Jesus tells his disciples, <clears throat> um, one second, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.
0: Okay, good. Um, let's go to another passage that helps flush this out. Go to uh, Matthew 18. You got it?
3: Um, one second. Matthew 18?
0: Yep. Yeah, read verses 15 through 17.
3: <clears throat> if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have one your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that you, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, Every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector.
0: Okay, stay right there. So you, you understand what he's saying? So he's giving you a roadmap for how mm-hmm. to handle somebody who is willfully and unrepentantly sinning, who calls himself a believer, right? Yeah. Okay, keep, keep your Bible there. Now read the next three verses, 18 through 20.
3: Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For for where two or more have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst.
0: Okay, now let's, let's do a little thought experiment. I'm cheating on my wife, and you know about it, Mm -hmm. and you bring your best friend with you. You you, you come to me, and I tell you, man, just get out of my life, just leave me alone. Mm -hmm. So then you go and you bring one or two of your buddies, and you guys confront me. And I tell the three of you to get lost. Mm -hmm. So then, let's just say we're in the same church, and you do that and you go to your, your church, what are they going to do? I'm not sure. Well, the, we're not, I'm not, I didn't say what should they do. I said what will they do?
3: They're going to shun you.
0: No, they're not. They're not going to do a dang thing. <laughs> they're not going to touch it. Have you seen this happen? Have you seen guys get disciplined in your church
3: um, yeah, every now and then I mean yeah I have
0: and I have. so they're 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 doing this regularly. let me suggest to you, most churches will not touch this with a ten foot pole okay that, but let's say let, let let's say we're in one of those churches that won't touch it okay, so Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered together, there am I among you so There's you and your two buddies who did what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And there's the church that didn't do what it was supposed to do. Is Jesus with them or with you? With me. Exactly. That's what that means. Okay. I guess... It has to do with doing the will of God. Mm -hmm.
3: I guess my question was kind of (laughs) more geared toward the, um, you know, in the Catholic tradition, Many congregants believe they have to go to confession and get forgiven. And many Catholics would point to that verse in in John and say that's kind of why there are priests that forgive because Jesus gave that right to His disciples to forgive. So I was just trying to square that.
0: Yeah, and my brother, I would just say that the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus is unique. And you have one and only one priest, Mm -hmm. and it is Him.
3: All right. Thank you what was your
0: verse, John Anything else Okay, so gentlemen, these three things that we just talked about: the wedding with with Greek uh, philosophy, the intertwining of the interests of state and church, and the uh, clerical distinction with a laity, all of this is the, that, that intertwining was the birth of Christendom. And in the West, that intertwining of the interests of the state, interests of the church, has been intact. That's why, so I'm, I was born in 1950, and so when I was, when I was young, I could depend on the state having my back as a Christian. So, for example, my entire education is a public education. When I was in grade school at Christmas time, we sang Christian hymns. It was just the way it was. Nobody thought anything about it. It It was just the deal. The reason we are experiencing what we are experiencing is that intertwining that has been intact for centuries is coming undone. So the state no longer sees the interests of Christians as part of its responsibility. And what has further happened is that we as a... let me back up one step. The United States, to my knowledge, was never a, quote, Christian nation. But, as a people, it held a Christian, a more or less Christian worldview, as a people, not every single individual, but a more or less Christian worldview and a more or less Christian morality. That is not true today. The United States now has a Marxist worldview, and a secular morality. I want to talk very briefly now about how that happened. So we left off with, with Augustine and all the, the synthesis of those three things. And so now we're, we're around 400 AD.
4: Jerry, can I ask a question?
0: Of Brandon, it's you, man.
4: Maybe you're getting to this, but <clears throat> what? Why? Why is it a problem? M- meaning, meaning, why? You know, we know we got to follow Christ, and with you know, saying how you know governments kind of their entity um, doing things we don't agree with necessarily, setting policies, etc. Why does this diversion? other than being aware of it, why is that so impactful for us as people that we know we got to follow Christ and create disciples?
0: Well, of all of the people who would have asked me that question, I would have thought you'd have been the last. <laughs> you were just complaining about that. <laughs> would you rather live in a place where... You didn't have to think about where you sent your kids to school because the teachers would have more or less your worldview. Would you like that?
4: No, I, I don't know. Can you ask that question again? I want to make sure I get it right.
0: Do do, do the do the schools yeah. do the schools hold the worldview that you and your wife hold? No would you like to live in a country where they did? Yeah, absolutely. Me too. That's the problem. It's not that way anymore.
4: Right. No, and I totally agree with it. I just, I guess I thought that would be acknowledged by now that, you you know, we live in the world but
0: not of the world mentality. What I'm saying to you, my brother, is from about the time of Augustine, until the very very recent past you live people who lived in the west didn't have to worry about where to send their kids to school they didn't have to worry about lgbtq they didn't have to worry about abortion on demand it just they didn't happen divorce used to be illegal back as far i think the 1940s illegal in the united states illegal not immoral illegal the world's changed. It's a different place. And my brother... For the ch- your, your children's generation, if the Lord tarries, the chances that the children of your generation are followers of Jesus Christ is very, very small. Because <clears throat> if you are true to the Bible, the chances are superb that there's only a very small handful of people in the world of your children who also believe what you believe they are going to be inundated with another worldview, a worldview which is both Marxist and secular. All this stuff that we're looking at is a product of that
2: so and in this, essence
4: it's it's much more difficult to be a follower of a true follower of Christ than a Culturally, it would have been 50 years ago.
0: Let me say it this way. There is a certain complacence that comes about when, quote, everybody's a Christian. When everybody's a Christian, there aren't many Christians around. But the the environment that that you're bringing your kids up in is absolutely hostile to your children. They hate your worldview, mm-hmm. and they will not stop. The only way they stop is when Jesus stops them. that's it. They will have their way. And that's what I think we're approaching. Again, my license to be right about these things expired a long time ago, but I think I think the earmarks are all there. Makes sense. Thank you. All right, now, are you, you going to go complain about things again?
2: <laughs> now if, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've got one for you. Okay. If I see where you're going here, persecution, right, before, you kind of had the two come together. Oh, and you, you, had, mean,
0: you mean before Augustine?
2: Before even, like, between Christ, <coughs> correct, and Augustine. Between Christ and... Right, and, and, okay. And, yeah, well, it was actually between uh,
0: Christ and the Edict of Milan.
2: Okay. Then you have this point where the state, you have the, com- the combination where we're, we're accepted. <coughs> right. Right? Right. And now you're getting down to this tier. Revelation basically says how we're going to be persecuted again. Yep. And I see that's kind of, if I'm right, that's where you're going with this, is that this is going to get much, much worse. And, and where <coughs> right now it's difficult. Okay, we don't like what they're teaching in the schools. Our children's generation, our children's children's children, might be dealing with something far worse. It's not just them telling us that they don't like what we're doing. Now it's they hate it so much that they want to, that there's, again, potentially the wars the, and the killing and everything else that happened yeah. previously.
0: Yeah, my brother, I yeah. cannot tell you that we are that generation. But if the, Revelation, if the book of Revelation is true, there is a generation of Christians that are going to be persecuted along with Jewish people. And the rise of anti Semitism in this country is not a healthy thing. It has never been at least a public part of our country. It is now very public. Okay, I've got to finish this silly thing. We're going to let you run a little bit here, No more questions. All right. All right, so <clears throat> this, this synthesis occurred and was intact for a long time. But it took a long time for it to unravel. And I want to talk about the things that caused it to unravel. The first it happened in the uh, 14th century. And there were three cataclysms. One was the Black Death, which killed a third to half of Europe. You, know, you think COVID was something? Small potatoes. A third to half of Europe killed by the Black Death. The second is the Babylonian captivity of the church, so-called, in which there were at one time as many as three popes in different cities. And then the final thing was the (coughs) Hundred Years' War between England and France. So those those things really began to shatter uh, and weaken the strength of the church. Then, in the 15th century, you have the the Renaissance. And the Renaissance was a rediscovery of a lot of the ancient and Greek ways, particularly in literature and art. And the Christians of the time viewed those works and said those are superior to what we Christians have produced. And at least among the intellectual class, that produced a further weakening of the authority of the Church. Then, in the next century, is the Protestant Reformation. That splits Roman Catholic and Protestant. And that's followed very shortly by denominationalism amongst the Protestants. That really weakened the church. Then, another century later, the scientific revolution starts. And guys like Newton, Galileo, Kepler, and those guys are producing information. They've discovered a tool to manufacture knowledge. Gentlemen, that is unprecedented in the history of the world. Isaac Newton invents calculus in his 20s. He invents calculus. And then then he goes out to discover that the laws of the universe are written in differential equations. Are you kidding me? And that becomes a means to produce knowledge. And now you've really got a very powerful competing knowledge source on this side of the equation, vis-a-vis this one, okay? That competing knowledge source is now growing. Now, the scientific revolution, I don't think I have it up here, is followed by by the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is a turning uh, point in in Western history and its thinking because what the enlightenment figures said is we reject all authority all authority save the authority of human reason and we specifically and they were very outspoken about this we specifically reject the authority of the bible and the authority of the church that was a turning point in human history now that's a long time ago But this is happening at the level of the intellectuals, okay? Now, the Enlightenment was a rationalist movement. And the rationalists believed in objective truth. But they said objective truth is obtained through rationality, through reasoning, okay? But then another group reacted to it, the so-called Romantics. The Romantics agreed, and I want to show you how this is moving, the direction this is moving. The Romantics said, we also believe in objective truth, but it is not apprehended by reason, it is apprehended by the emotions and the passions. See the shift? That's a giant shift. That was, I don't have the nihilists up here, but the nihilists really made a big break when they said, we do not believe in objective truth, it's all relative. And Nietzsche specifically said, the will, by which I understand him to mean desire, desire is the way to build the world. So this is followed by cultural Marxism. Uh, I don't think I want to go this into this in a lot of detail, but basically this is the intellectual forerunner of what became first known as political correctness, and then later morphed into DEI, LGBTQ, critical race theory. All of those are the children of cultural Marxism, okay? And then finally, we've developed into a secular culture. We have a Marxist worldview whose idol is man, and which believes in the myth of progress that we can bring ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we have a secular morality which says that morality is derived purely from what we perceive to be man's best interests in the temporal. And it specifically excludes all considerations drawn from belief in God or a future state like heaven or hell. It has everything to do with the temporal and do not bring any God stuff into this. You, that's forbidden. You can think whatever you want, at least for now. Okay? Make sense? All right. What happened, I don't know if you guys in the back can see this, what happened to the church is she imbibed this all of this stuff and it led to this word apostasy you know what apostasy is? It's falling away. It can only be, uh, unbelievers cannot be apostates because they were never believers. It's what happens when believers fall away from the true faith. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let me make a point about, about, this, about secularism here. Wherever Christianity took root, the idea of freedom followed suit. The Bible says a lot about freedom. But the biblical idea of freedom and the conception of freedom that has captured us are two completely different things. Gentlemen, the biblical idea of freedom is is seen in the words of Jesus in John 8.32. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the, free, the freedom of which he speaks is freedom from sin. That is the freedom that Christ offers. Because we are slaves, men. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you want to be or you don't want to be. We are all slaves. And you're either a slave of Jesus Christ, or you're a slave of something wicked. It's just... It's just how life is. And he came to set us free from sin. But the idea of freedom, which is developed on this secular cultural Marxist side of of, of freedom, is the freedom to be whatever and whoever you want. It is autonomy. If I want it, I should have it. That is the difference. And that's why freedom became popular wherever Christianity came, but it morphed into a very unbiblical conception of freedom. Any questions about any of this? I'm going to skip over some of this because it's not that interesting. Um, Let me me read you something from 2 Thess chapter 2. And it relates to this idea of apostasy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses... (coughs) Excuse me. Verses 1 through 4. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. He's talking about the rapture. okay? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." So you hear what he's saying? Jesus is not coming until the church is apostate. Gentlemen, we are apostate. Now, I cannot tell you that the apostasy of which we are a part is the apostasy of 2 Thessalonians 2. But I can tell you we are in a very, very deep apostasy. We have fallen so far. Now, in the Old Testament, apostasy, which Israel committed, is Defined sometimes as idolatry and sometimes as harlotry. And that leads us to the great harlot of Revelation 17. So turn over there. And I'm going to read the first six verses of Revelation 17. <clears throat> it's an easy one to find last book. Revelation 17, 1 to 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Okay, see, she's polluting the world. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, This is the Antichrist, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. There's that number ten again, the ten kings. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, And with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, when I saw her, I wondered greatly." Gentlemen, she's riding on a beast. I cannot be certain that my interpretation of this is right. What I believe is that that beast is the Antichrist and that he represents the head of that last manifestation of the Roman Empire. And that the harlot is the apostate church. That this here is, here is the relationship between the apostate church and the state. Remember, we talked about how they got together. <clears throat> and it says she's a mystery. The mystery is how does the bride of Christ become a harlot? And she became a harlot by going her own way. It seems to me, men, that that picture is the last and final form of Christendom. And gentlemen, the other other thing that stands out about her is she pollutes the rest of the world with her immorality. So here's here's the picture that John is painting. This marriage of church and state that became Christendom, which you and I have benefited from, now becomes the exporter of sin to the rest of the world. And men That's precisely what we've done. That is precisely what we've done. I've got friends in Hong Kong, and I talk to them periodically, and they say, what on earth is wrong with you guys? How can you, you you are corrupting us and our children. How can you do this? How How can you call yourself Christian? And we can't. And examples of this include abortion on demand, all manner of sexual immorality, feminism, role reversals of the sexual roles, LGBTQ, anti-Semitism. We're exporting all these things to the rest of the world. It's us that is doing that that's leading the way. Can
4: you say those again, Jerry?
0: Yeah. Sexual immorality, abortion on demand, feminism, sexual role reversal, LGBTQ, anti Semitism. Now, gentlemen, the, um, that relationship between the harlot and the beast between what I'm calling the apostate church and the state does not end happily. Again, out of Revelation 17, and I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled." That's how it ends for the apostate church. Right, gentlemen, the state turns against not just the apostate church, but the true followers of Jesus. This is Revelation 13.7. This is speaking of the Antichrist. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. A gentlemen, a lot of commentators, the, 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 the most conservative commentators will read what I just read to you and say that the saints refer to Jewish Christians who have come to Christ in the tribulation. I hope they're right, but I'm skeptical. So they, they're, they're, they're a lot more educated and smarter than I am. Smart money is with them, but I'm, I'm just skeptical. Let me see if I can wrap this up. Men, are problems, my problem, your problem, our problems are spiritual. They are not political. Spiritual problems do not lend themselves to political solutions. We cannot vote ourselves out of this. The strongest card you can play is the quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now is the time. We're running out of time. Whether it's by death or whether it's by the rapture. We're all running out of time. Your strongest card is your relationship with Jesus. And men, remember just as he guided the church right into the teeth of Rome and planted the church there. We are, in my opinion, right in the heart of the beast. And it's by design, it is God ordained. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. nothing is off, off course off schedule. it's right on time everything. And so men. let me read from you read to you out of second Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2 the first four verses Paul says to Timothy, "You therefore my son be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Gentlemen, we need soldiers. We need soldiers. But you cannot entangle yourself in the affairs of everyday life. What that looks like for you is between you and the Lord Jesus. But we need soldiers. God guided the church through the first Roman Empire and he'll guide her through this second iteration of her. Christendom may end, Christendom will end, but the Church of Christ will not. Be strong, be courageous, act like men. Be good soldiers. Amen.